News of the Times, Frightful Fridays, Murder at Island's Eye. Welcome to News of the Times. In today's episode, it is September 1851, at the scenic islet of Island's Eye, located not that far from Dublin. Miniatures artist William Burke Kerwin and his wife are on holiday in the picturesque coastal town of Howth. A day is planned to go to the islet armed with a blanket, a picnic basket, art sketchbook and swimming sundries. The boat service that ferries them across are instructed to return at 8pm and collect them and take them back. 8pm arrives and there is no Mrs. Kerwin to be found on the remote isolated island. What unfolds is a very complex case that remains contentious to this day. We take a look at the background, the crime and the evidence in the case of the murder on Ireland's Eye in today's episode of Frightful Fridays. We very much hope you enjoyed the show. It is September 1852. William Burke Kerwin and his wife of some eleven years, Sarah Maria Louisa Kerwin, who normally reside in the heart of Dublin, take a trip to the quaint coastal town of Howth. William Kerwin is a painter with an annual income of approximately a thousand pounds. His wife, who is frequently referred to as a remarkably good-looking woman, enjoys bathing and strolling. From Howth, it was possible to take a boat ride to the small, uninhabited island known as Island's Eye, disembark and ask for the boat to collect them at a later time in the day. The Kerwins were known to have made one such trip, where Mr. Kerwin sketched while Mrs. Kerwin hiked along the paths and swam. On their second trip to the island, the couple once again took a boat ride to the island, giving specific instructions to return at 8pm. This was somewhat odd, as Mr. Kerwin was there to sketch, but it would be quite dark at 8pm. The couple had brought a blanket, a picnic basket, Mr. Kerwin's artist tools, and Mrs. Kerwin had with her her bathing costume and swimming sundries. The boat deposits the couple on the island, returns a few hours later with another couple, then returns again at around 4pm to bring the second couple back. There is some confusion regarding the time that the boat finally returned for the Kerwins, with some claims of shortly before 8pm and other statements claiming it was closer to 9pm. Regardless, it was very dark. Mr. Kerwin was waiting on the dock, but there was no Mrs. Kerwin. From the Dublin Evening Mail, the 8th of September, 1852. Melancholy death by drowning. Yesterday, Henry Davis, Esquire, one of the county coroners, held an inquest in Howth on view of the body of a lady named Mrs. Maria Kerwin, who came by her death under the following melancholy circumstances. 
The deceased was a remarkably handsome woman about 32 years of age. The first witness examined was fisherman named Patrick Nangle, who deposed that he was employed by Mr. Kerwin to leave him and Mrs. Kerwin on Ireland's Eye on Monday morning. Mr. Kerwin had told him to be ready at eight o'clock in the morning, and the witness and three other men took them in a boat to Ireland's Eye and left them there at about ten o'clock in the morning. The deceased was a remarkably handsome woman, aged 32 years of age. The first witness examined was a fisherman named Patrick Nangle, who deposed that he was employed by Mr. Kerwin to leave him and Mrs. Kerwin on Ireland's Eye on Monday morning. Mr. Kerwin had told him to be ready at eight o'clock. Witness and three other men took them in a boat to Ireland's Eye and left them there at about ten o'clock in the morning. Mrs. Kerwin had told them to return to the island at eight o'clock in the evening. They had a small travelling bag and a basket with them. The boatman left another party on the island at about twelve o'clock and returned at four o'clock when the deceased Mrs. Kerwin came down to him and told him to come for her and her husband at eight o'clock in the evening. He went accordingly at that hour with his boat and the same three men when within about twelve perches of the island he hailed the Kerwins. It was then very dark. Mr. Kerwin answered and said he was there. They got into the landing place, and Mr. Kerwin, who was on the bank above, desired one of the men to go up for the bag. Witness went for the bag. Mr. Kerwin was by himself, and he and one of the boatmen named Michael Nangle went off to look for Mrs. Kerwin. Witness remained a short time behind and then followed them. Michael Nangle and Witness, accompanied by Mr. Kerwin, searched for her, and they continued to search along the east side of the island where, at low watermark, they found her, lying on her back, with her bathing dress on about her waist. A sheet was beside her, partly under her, and she also had bathing boots on. The body was on the rock just out of the water, and Witness believed it was the rock that prevented it from being carried out to sea. Her clothes were ten or fifteen yards from where the body was found, on a rock about six feet from the water's edge. It was close to where the ladies bathe when they go to the island. Witness had brought Mr. and Mrs. Kerwin over to the island the two days previous. Mrs. Kerwin wanted to stay as late as eight o'clock, but they came over rather sooner. Michael Nangle examined when the boat landed for Mr. and Mrs. Kerwin at eight o'clock in the evening, and Mr. Kerwin called up for someone to take the bag. Witness went up to him and asked him where was the mistress. Mr. Kerwin said she went down to bathe a little shortly after the shower, which was about six o'clock. He, Mr. Kerwin, said he was in trouble, that he had gone along the strand to look for her but could not find her or hear her voice. He and witness then went along the strand on the east side 
it was now low watermark, where they found the deceased wedged in between two rocks, partly on her back and her feet in the water. Mr. Cohen covered the body with a sheet and a shawl, and they brought it up to the boat. They searched for the clothes, but couldn't find them. When Mr. Kerwin went higher up on the rocks and found them, it was about ten o'clock when they found the body. Mr. Kerwin appeared to be in very great trouble when she was discovered. William Kerwin examined, I am an artist residing at number 11 Upper Merrion Street. The deceased lady, Maria Kerwin, was my wife. I was married to her about nine or ten years. I have been living with Mrs. Cohen at Howth five or six weeks and was in the habit of going over to Island's Eye as an artist. Mrs. Cohen used to accompany me. She was very fond of bathing, and while I sketched, she used to roam about or bathe. Yesterday she went over as usual. She bathed at the foot of the Martello Tower but could not stay long in the water as the boatmen were to bring another party to the island. She left me in the latter part of the day at six o'clock to bathe again and told me she would walk around the hill after bathing and meet at the boat. I did not see her alive afterwards and only found the body described by the boatman. Mr. James Alexander Hamilton, medical student, deposed that he had examined the body of the deceased. There were no marks of violence upon it. There were a few scratches apparently caused by the rocks. The body presented all the appearance of that of a drowned person. The jury found that the deceased had been accidentally drowned while bathing at Island's Eye on the sixth instant. With that pronouncement at the inquest, one would think that the case was closed. However, a series of events come to light that creates some doubt as to whether the death of Mrs. Kerwin had been murder versus the initial presumed accidental death. A passing ship captain logs having seen a man and a woman seemingly struggling at the very point where Mrs. Kerwin's body is found. Terrified screams were heard by a number of witnesses, including boatmen who had been near the island. There is an incongruity with the tides, the body and the trousers of Mr. Kerwin, and the most important circumstantial piece of evidence was that Mr. Kerwin had a second family, including eight children with whom he had been running a concurrent relationship from the very start of his marriage with Mrs. Kerwin. In 1852, Ireland, this was a damning testament to the character of Mr. Kerwin. It was noted that the person who had done the post-mortem of the body was a medical student. Orders are given for the body of Mrs. Kerwin to be exhumed for a more thorough investigation. Unfortunately, her burial site was particularly wet with water having rapidly seeped into the coffin, thereby further accelerating the decomposition of her body. The examination of the decomposing corpse moved forward, and it was suggested that there were signs of violence 
that went beyond the marks that could have been made against the rocks. With this cumulative evidence, Kerwin is accused of murder and will go to trial. Kerwin firmly pleads not guilty, and he is very ably defended, but the preponderance of the evidence weighs against him. From the Fife Herald, the 16th of December, 1852, the Kerwin murderer. From the Times, the trial of Mr. Kerwin in Dublin for the murder of his wife on the 6th of September last has terminated in a conviction. The wretched man has received a sentence of death, and the presiding judges held out no hope of mercy, as the evidence was so conclusive a nature as to leave no doubt upon the minds of his guilt. The case is a curious one, not only from the respectable position in life occupied by the parties to the tragical occurrence, but from the manner and the spot in which the crime was carried into effect. All persons who have visited Dublin must be familiar with the appearance of a little rocky islet which is situated at about the distance of a mile from Howth, and which is pointed out to the traveller as Island's Eye. It is a wild spot enough, and is seldom visited but by an artist in search of the picturesque, or by an occasional party of merrymakers who would find additional freshness in a summer's afternoon. Such is the spot which will henceforth have gained additional notoriety as the scene of one of the most hideous murders recorded in the annals of our criminal courts. In this Dublin tragedy it is evident that lawless attachment of the husband to a woman not his wife led to the conception and finally to the completion of the bloody act. The unfortunate lady appears to have struggled for some time against the violence of that hand which should have shielded her from all harm. In the case, a chain of circumstantial evidence led to the conviction of the murderer's guilt. The story appears to be briefly this. William Burke Kerwin is about 45 years of age. He was married some 12 years back to a very beautiful young woman with whom it would seem as though he had not lived on good terms from the first, nor, from the circumstances of the case, can we well come to any other conclusion than that the fault lay on the husband's side. From the first hour of his union with his wife Maria Kerwin, he lived with another woman, Teresa Kenny, by whom he had a family of eight children. The strangest feature, perhaps, in the whole story is that during the whole of these twelve years, neither of the two women had the slightest idea that she had a rival, nor indeed was Mrs. Kerwin aware of this fact until about six months back. It may well be supposed how the embarrassments inseparable from such a situation would embitter the feelings and influence the conduct of Kerwin towards that one of the two women who did not stand the highest in his favour. That woman was his wife. But when this story had reached her ears, and she had spoken and acted as women will act and speak in such situations, 
Kerwin's feelings towards her appears to have been converted into mere ferocity. This being the position of Mr. and Mrs. Kerwin in the month of June last, they went to lodge at Howth for a change of air, and from the first, according to the testimony of the woman at whose house they lodged, Kerwin's conduct to his wife was brutal in the extreme. Thus matters went on until Sunday the 5th of September. On Tuesday the 7th, they were to have returned to Dublin. On the Sunday evening, Kerwin went down to two boatmen, Patrick Nagel and Michael Nagel, and engaged them to carry him and his wife over the next day to Ireland's Eye. Whether or not the awful purpose which he finally carried into effect was then present to his mind, it is not for us to say. But it would certainly appear as though the desire to get rid of his wife in some way or other had been long present in his mind. On Monday at about ten o'clock, the unfortunate lady and her murderer went down to the boat. They had a bag and two bottles of water with them. Mrs. Kerwin, besides, had a reticule, and Kerwin a sword cane and a sketching book. The boatman rowed them over to the islet. At about twelve o'clock they conveyed a second party across, whom they brought back at four o'clock in the afternoon. By that party and by the boatman, Mrs. Kerwin was seen alive at the hour named, when she desired the men to come back for her husband and herself at eight o'clock in the evening. The boat went on its way. At about seven o'clock, cries were heard from Ireland's Eye, as of a person in distress. Not only were these cries heard upon the mainland, but by the crew of a boat which was returning from fishing. At this time, Kerwin and his wife were the only people on the island. According to orders, the boatmen returned at eight o'clock when they found the husband standing alone at the landing-place. In reply to their inquiries, he stated that his wife had left him about an hour and a half before, and he knew not what had become of her. The party then proceeded to look for the lady and continued their search, until they arrived at a place called the Long Hole, which is out of sight of Howth Harbour. This spot is always covered with water when the tide is in, but uncovered when the tide is out. Upon the rock in this spot, the dead body of Mrs. Kerwin was found at ten o'clock. The incident is thus described by the boatman. Her bathing dress was up under her arms, and there was a sheet under her. Her head was lying back in a hole, and her feet were in a pool of water, about the fullness of my hat, about half a gallon. I saw cuts on her forehead and under her eye. There was blood coming down by her ears from her side and breast and other places. On the day in question, it was high water at half past three o'clock. We should here state that the statement is that at half past six, his wife left him for the purpose of bathing. At that time there were two feet six inches of water over the rocks on which the body was found. At seven o'clock, when the cries were heard, 
there was one foot nine inches of water. Now, if the tide had been a rising tide, it might have been supposed that she had been drowned further out at sea, and so had then been washed in. But the tide was falling, the night calm, and what little wind there was, was westerly. There is yet another fact which tells with damning effect against the murderer. The boatman went to search about for the clothes of the unfortunate woman in vain. They were not to be found. Then Kerwin went, and he could not, as pretended, find them either. But when the boatman went for a second time, he found the clothes, which had been subsequently placed by some hand which could only have been that of Kerwin, in a spot which he had most diligently searched, but a few minutes before. More than this, after the body had been removed to the mainland, it was found to bear many wounds and marks of great violence. Kerwin's trousers and drawers were wet. He sat down by the kitchen fire to dry them. Now, he had not had occasion to wet himself where the body was found, for the water was there two feet below the rock upon which it was discovered. There was a coroner's inquest. How managed we know not. Certainly the circumstance reflects very little credit upon the coroner or the jury who investigated the case, but by some hocus-pocus or other a verdict of accidental death was returned. Poor Mrs. Kerwin was buried in the cemetery at Glasvenin, the wettest place that could be selected, so that the body was so decomposed even in the short time that had elapsed since her murder that medical testimony could scarcely be brought to bear upon the case. But the circumstantial evidence was too strong. From four to eight o'clock Mrs. Kerwin and her husband were alone upon the islet and at four o'clock she was seen alive. At eight o'clock nothing was left but to search for the remains of the murdered woman. The case of Mrs. Kerwin will retain a powerful notoriety even in the dismal annals of Irish crime. Once again it would seem that the trial was the end of the case, but no. Although those in the courtroom applauded the verdict, there was a grand swell of public opinion that fought hard for at least a commutation on the basis of doubt. This was not helped by the contradictory medical testimony that initially assumed accidental death versus the later medical testimony on a corpse that was badly decomposed due to water damage. The public outcry also focused on the belief that Kerwin had been primarily found guilty due to his second illicit long-term affair with Teresa Kenny. One of the features of the case that was brought up was the supposed difference between English criminal case versus Irish criminal cases. From the Inverness Courier, the 23rd of December, 1852, the murderer, Kerwin. The prisoner was then removed from the dock and was shortly afterwards conveyed to Kilmarthen Jail in a covered car, escorted by a party 
of mounted police. All of his property had been confiscated by the authorities, as he said his professional income was a thousand a year. His execution is fixed for Tuesday the 18th of January. The case of Mr. Kerwin, says the Times, will retain powerful notoriety even in the dismal annals of Irish crime. There is no doubt that it will, but the reason why this murder will stand out prominently in the record of Ireland's crimes is the same reason which causes the crime to create so unusually great a sensation in Ireland. The reason is that Kerwin's crime is not a crime of Irish character, but distinctly English. In the ample catalogue of Irish murders, the great striking feature is the absence of domestic crime. One of the English criminal records, domestic crime, is the grand characteristic. In Ireland, the man who is hanged for shooting a landlord may be, and often is, the very model of a loving and faithful husband, and of an affectionate father. The most common of all the murders recorded in the English newspapers of the day is the murder of a wife by her husband, and the next most common is the murder of a husband by his wife. Occasionally a son murders his father or his mother, and there is such a thing as a mother and aunt joining to murder a daughter, and a niece for refusing to support them by the gains of prostitution. The case of Kerwin has all the aspects of English crime about it, and is exceedingly unlike your regular Irish murder, unlike in being the murder of a wife by a husband, so rare in Ireland, yet so common in England, and still more unlike in the domestic guilt in which the murder took its rise. The papers are flooded with letters stating that Kerwin, at the least, should have his sentence of death commuted. Public opinion wins, and Kerwin manages to escape the noose. From the whole packet, the 14th of January, 1853, the convict Kerwin. It was announced on New Year's Day to William Burke Kerwin that the sentence of death for the murder of his wife was commuted to transportation for life, and that he would be conveyed forthwith to the convict depot at Spike Island near Queenstown, immediately after he became affected with fits. A medical certificate to that effect was drawn up by Dr. Rind, the medical attendant of Kilmahin Prison, by direction of the Lord Lieutenant, Dr. White, one of the inspectors general of lunatic asylums, examined the convict on Tuesday and has drawn up a report for the guidance of the government. Further information comes out of Kerwin's alleged previous history in which he ruined one girl and stole the property of another. More importantly, there is a backlash that officials have succumbed to public pressure to commute Kerwin's death penalty sentence. With the sudden onslaught of Kerwin's fits, he would also not be eligible for transportation, but rather would need to serve his time in local prisons, where he could be assured of medical attention were he to have more fits.
From the Dublin Evening Mail, the 26th of January, 1853, under what circumstances did Justice Cameron and Mr. Baron Green recommend Lord Eglinton to commute Kerwin's sentence? Upon what grounds was it commuted? Why were not the law officers of the Crown consulted in a matter peculiarly within their province, and there not being consulted in which was in a fact a gross insult to them? Despite the controversy surrounding his case, Kerwin endured over twenty-five years of penal servitude for the murder of his wife on Ireland's Eye. He was eventually released in January 1879. According to the Irish Times, Kerwin found himself recognised by some individuals across Dublin City upon his return to society. Historically, the case remained controversial, with some quite certain that Kerwin had been condemned more due to the morals of the time rather than the evidence that had been put forward. That concludes this episode of Frightful Fridays, a murder at Island's Eye. We very much hope you enjoyed the show. If you did enjoy the show, we will be grateful if you could like or subscribe to our little channel. We upload five days a week. Mondays are murderous as we delve into the dark side of Regency and Victorian crime. Wednesdays are wicked, where we pull together stories with a similar theme, such as Doctors of Death. Fridays are frightful, where we look at crimes in a location, such as stories from the stage to murder and scandal in the aristocracy. Saturdays is Serial Killer Saturdays, where we investigate serial killer stories from the past. And Sundays is a bit of fun, with a unique mini-murder mystery where you, the listener, have a chance to solve a murderous riddle. On the last Sunday of the month, we offer a two-hour compilation of stories based around a theme. Thank you again for watching and listening. This has been News of the Times, and I am Robin Coles.